Jesus, we love you and we celebrate you today. We thank you so much for your resurrection, for the life that you gave on the cross, for our sins, for our redemption, and the way that you proved your power and your redemptive power through the resurrection. And we praise you for that this morning. I thank you for the people in this room who've come to worship you today, Lord. I pray, God, by your power, that you would move in our hearts this morning, that you would turn our attention to you, that you would uh, open the eyes of our hearts with the truth of your word. And uh, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. I want to share a story. I want to kind of start by sharing a story with you guys that has um, some pretty deep personal significance for me. It's a story from World War II. Maybe you're kind of familiar with it. Um, but uh, it took place in the South Pacific Ocean where the U.S. forces were battling the forces of the Japanese Army. And the Pacific Ocean, as you probably know, is a vast oceanic wasteland. I mean, there is literally almost nothing in the entire few thousand miles of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, this makes engaging in battle quite difficult, as you could imagine. You can't very easily resupply ships. You can't very easily stage a massive ground invasion. It's going to take a lot more effort than it would typically take in some sort of ground theater battle situation. And so for the Americans to defeat the Japanese, uh, it was going to take some additional effort to transport troops to the islands and supply those uh, divisions of troops. And essentially, it's, it's open ocean from California straight across to Japan. And because of this uh, reality, there were a few prime pieces of real estate that became crucial uh, islands in this uh, South Pacific theater, this battle. Okay? Tactical objectives that were placed between California or, the, or uh, the West Coast and Japan, namely islands like Hawaii, Tinian, Okinawa, Iwo Jima. Maybe you've heard some of those names before. Okay? Tiny islands, basically in the middle of nowhere. And one island in particular, called Tinian, became the focus of the American forces' efforts in 1944. And this island in particular was significant because it was far enough from Japan not to draw too much attention if there were some serious efforts going on on this island by the American forces, and yet uh, close enough to the island of Japan where the U.S. could actually fly long-range bombers to engage in war on Japanese soil. Okay? And the American military leadership came to the realization that this island in particular would be a prime space, a prime tactical advantage in the battle against Japan in the South Pacific. And they simply couldn't pass it up. That's how significant it was. Now, the only problem was that Tinian was already occupied by Japanese forces. They'd staked a claim. They'd been there for a long time, built bunkers. They'd hunkered down behind barricades with artillery guns, simply waiting for the Americans to come and assault their forces on the island of Tinian. And although the island seems small and insignificant when you consider the scope of the South Pacific Ocean, it was an invaluable resource for the American forces doing battle in the South Pacific. So on July 24th, 1944, American troops began an assault on the island of Tinian. And just to give you an idea, the island of Tinian is tiny. It's roughly the size of Maricopa, okay? Which if you've lived here a while, you understand Maricopa is pretty small, right? And, and, and when you consider the size of the South Pacific Ocean, you can see how just what an insignificant piece of land this must have appeared to be. 
But the battle between the U.S. and Japanese forces, it lasted nine whole days, back and forth, straight through the night, every single day. And at the end, the American forces were successful in capturing and occupying the island. And roughly 8,000 Japanese lost their life in that battle, and over 300 Americans gave their lives for that piece of land. And the reason why the story intrigues me personally is that my grandfather, Chet Root, was one of the fortunate men who fought in that battle for the island of Tinian in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific, and fortunately for him, lived to tell the story. And one of his good friends, I remember him telling the story as I was growing up, one of his good friends was not so fortunate. He gave his life on one of those days in that battle on the island of Tinian, hit with a sniper round right next to my grandfather. And uh, although the U.S. forces lost some men in the fight, the capture of the island of Tinian was a decisive moment in the war against the Japanese forces in World War II. May have seemed like an insignificant piece of real estate, but it was a decisive moment in the American victory. Because although this island seemed small and insignificant, although it was positioned in the middle of nowhere, the American forces had developed a secret weapon that they believed would help them win the war against Japan without actually staging a massive ground invasion on the island of Japan that would have led to catastrophic loss of life on both sides, Japanese and American. But in order for them to carry out their plans to win the war, they had to have this decisive moment, this battle over the island of Tinian. It had to occur. And my story doesn't end there because it gets even more personal for me. Shortly after the island of Tinian was captured, American forces turned it into a full-fledged military base in the middle of the South Pacific. 50,000 troops were based out of there in World War II. B-29 bombers, sometimes called the Super Fortress, one of the most advanced aircraft of the day, were brought in from California. The 509th Bombing Squadron began then to call the island of Tinian their home. And they began these highly classified training missions that many of the people flying the planes didn't even know the purpose behind. And incredibly, my other grandfather was a part of the 509th Bombing Squadron. How unbelievable that both of my grandfathers then would be on this island in World War II around the same time. My, my, my grandfather, Raymond Beale, alive to this day, an incredible man, a godly man. He was the navigator aboard the, the Full House, which was the weather reconnaissance plane that flew in front of the Enola Gay. Maybe you've heard that name before. That is the aircraft that dropped the bomb over Hiroshima. And, and the reason why the capture of the island of Tinian was such a decisive moment in World War II is because the Enola Gay then had an opportunity to fly from Tinian straight through the night to the island of Japan and drop the bomb on Hiroshima, which caused the Japanese forces to realize that the Americans had access to a weapon so beyond their power that they couldn't possibly win World War II at that point. Now, the reason that I tell you this story is to inform you that wars have decisive moments. Moments when the, the, the results hang in the balance. Moments when in the heat of battle, the tide appears to turn and the forces fighting for good begin to see a new day dawning at the approach of victory. Decisive moments when the outcome seems to hang in the balance, but one decision, one action, 
one moment changes the outcourse, tips the scale in favor of those who will ultimately be victorious. And the island of Tinian, the decision to capture it, it might have seemed small and insignificant in the scope of the whole war, all that was going on in Europe and all across the world. But it was truly a decisive moment that helped determine the end of World War II. And the events that surround Easter Sunday, which is why you're here today, like the events that surrounded the Battle of Tinian, they were decisive moments, guys, in the victory that Jesus had over sin, over evil, and ultimately over death. Decisive moments that I believe changed the course of human history forever, that set right a world spinning towards destruction in these few moments. And at Easter, Christians celebrate a victorious Jesus who stepped forth from an empty tomb after being brutally murdered. But the small victories, I believe, that made him victorious actually began on Thursday night before Jesus was betrayed into the hands of those who would ultimately butcher him on the cross. And I want to look at a few of these moments with you this morning, okay? The first one, Mark chapter 14. I didn't put it up on the screen. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. If, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible handy, just close your eyes and feel free to listen as I read this to you. Mark chapter 14 in the Bible tells us that on that Thursday night, Jesus, after breaking bread with his disciples, after having one finally, final meal with them, he took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where he won his first victory. Let me read it to you. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this right here was a gut-wrenching, decisive moment in the battle of good and evil. The epic war for your soul. And so intense was this moment that the Gospel of Luke says that while Jesus was praying, his sweat was falling like great drops of blood onto the ground. And in this moment, Jesus surrendered his earthly life to the will of his heavenly father. He prayed and he asked God earnestly for a different way to save humanity than his precious death on the cross. And three times he prayed and he asked God to provide another way. And what we see here is that it was the will of God our father that Jesus would be crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus was faithful to obey the will of God the Father. 
And had Jesus lost this battle, this decisive moment, you would still be wretched and despised by God. You would still be crushed under the weight of your sin, deserving of eternal death in hell. But because Jesus endured the struggle of this moment and he chose willingly to enter into your suffering for your sake, victory was won for you. And this was the first decisive moment that solidified Jesus' victory over your life so that you might be saved. And he chose to endure the suffering ahead of him for your sake. While he was going through that excruciating torture, it was your name and your face that filled his mind. And you know where the story goes from here probably, right? He was turned over to the religious authorities And after much fanfare, he was found to be innocent of all the charges brought against him. No one could find him guilty. And yet false witnesses were brought forward. They were forced to lie and make up stories in order to find some reason to actually crucify Jesus. And he was condemned to die. And yet, though he was innocent, he had done nothing wrong. He was sentenced to death in the most gruesome fashion that you could possibly imagine. He was then publicly beaten, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was ridiculed before he was finally nailed to a cross and hung for all to see, to continue their jeering and their mocking. And it was there on that cross that Jesus won what I believe is his second victory in another powerfully decisive moment, a moment that tipped the scales and revealed that surely our God is victorious. The Gospel of Mark records it in chapter 15. I'll just read it for you briefly. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just so you understand, that's 9 a.m. to noon. The sky was darkened at the death of Christ. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Gospel of John records that moments later he said these final words as he hung there. He said, it is finished. It is finished. And the meaning of those words was that Jesus endured the rejection of God the Father for you. For me. For all of humanity. My sin, your sin, the sins of the world, the wretched and horrible sins, things like murder, rape, pedophilia, adultery, selfishness, idolatry, hatred, abuse, cruelty, bigotry, dishonesty, and every other evil sin that you can possibly imagine. Every sin of every person who's ever lived in that moment fell on Jesus. And in the moment that he laid there on the cross, died there on the cross, all of it came to rest on the shoulders of one man. And even then, even as that sin weighed on the shoulders of Jesus, heavy on his brilliant being, he even then could have stepped down from the cross. He could have come down in power and refused in that moment his purpose. He could have forsaken it for himself, forsaken you and forsaken me. But he endured the shame. He endured the pain He endured the rejection and the abuse that we should have had 
all to prove his unfailing love for a wretched people like you and me. And I, I don't want you guys to miss the power of the cross. I want to say this again. Jesus endured the shame and the pain and the rejection and the abuse to prove his unfailing love for you, for you. And in that decisive moment, again, Jesus proved the power of God to overcome sin and evil. And in his death, he was victorious. And he finished the work of saving your soul by taking the wrath of God upon himself, the wrath of God for sin and evil, so that you could be forgiven. That's an incredible testimony. But his victorious endurance, it doesn't end there, okay? Because he's risen. That's what Easter's about. He is risen. risen Thank you. And that's right. You, you, most of you probably know the story where it goes from here. That's why we're here this morning. It's not about Easter eggs and bunny rabbits. It's about an empty tomb. And we're here to celebrate his miraculous resurrection from the dead. An unheard of truth. He was taken down from the cross. He was wrapped in burial shrouds. He was buried in a tomb, undeniably dead. And he laid there for three days while the world mourned his execution. And his followers began to believe that death and sin and evil could never be defeated. That that was the inevitable end no matter what. That the victory ultimately had been lost in the cruel murder of the sweetest, most gentle man who had ever lived. But they went to his tomb for comfort anyway on that third day around sunrise, as those who grieve would do, right? And the story recorded in the book of Matthew, it goes like this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now look, if Jesus had stayed in the tomb, then nothing else would have mattered. Nothing else would have mattered. The story would have ended there and the unexceptional life of Jesus would have faded into obscurity like every other unexceptional life that has happened throughout all of history. And even some exceptional lives, right? Nobody remembers. And and death eventually steals the life of every person It has a day for you. It is coming for you. It's picked it out. One day, death will show up at your doorstep for you. And as time passes and generations proceed, you'll be slowly forgotten. I'm sorry to say. And all the work of your hands will eventually fade into obscurity. 
But praise be to God that Jesus lives and he has risen from the dead. His life is not forgotten. And because his is not forgotten, yours doesn't need to be either. And in this decisive moment, when he stepped forth from the tomb, we see with clarity that Jesus was victorious. Even the finality of death had no power over him. He defeated death. He rose from the dead. He proved the power of God to overcome even the absolute end of death. And the power, and the resur- and the power of his life and resurrection, it endures even 2,000 years later to this very day where we're all gathered here to celebrate his resurrection. And this is the important part that I want you to hear this morning. In his resurrection power, he offers that same eternal life to you so that you don't have to fear death, so that you don't have to live under the torment of its inevitability. Because we too, who are saved in Christ, will rise and be victorious with Jesus. And your life has eternal significance in the resurrection of Christ. Now, a lot of people think this is where the story ends, right? That's it. He's going to wrap it up, and we all get to go home soon. But you're wrong. I want to give you one more decisive moment that will prove the victory of Jesus over all things. And this is my... Favorite part? Should I say that? It's all my favorite part. How do I pick? But it's a moment that has yet to come. A moment that one day you will be there to see and observe and experience firsthand. And we get a sneak peek of it in what has recently become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's a prophecy in Revelation 19. And I want to read it to you. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this, my friends, is the final decisive moment. The truth is that Jesus has already won the war. It's over. He and he alone wins. He and he alone is victorious over death, victorious over evil, victorious over sin, victorious over your life. And none of these things can stand against him. Neither can any person or power or authority. He's victorious over your life, your eternal soul, and he's victorious over all things, both seen and unseen. And this moment, this prophecy from Revelation, in this moment we see, we see the end of all things when Jesus, our marvelous Savior, will be crowned Lord of all. And every previous decisive moment is finally revealed for what it is. The work of God to accomplish his will to save mankind. 
That's what it all points to. And in this final moment, the war will be over. The skirmish is finished. The battle's complete. Jesus will be victorious, Lord of lords and King of kings. And that is the resurrected Jesus that we worship here this morning at Maricopa Springs. Now, all of this is leading to your own personal decisive moment right here, right now. You're sitting in a decisive moment this morning. And you have a very important decision to make. I might say the most important decision to make. And I want to speak to a couple people. For those of you, first of all, in this room who don't know Jesus at all this morning, you really thought Easter was about bunnies and eggs, which is okay. But I'd like to correct that misconception this morning. Your choice in this decisive moment is to pick a side. Whose side do you want to be on? When Jesus returns in glory, wielding a sword with which to strike down the nations, whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be behind him riding your own white horse? Or do you want to be standing in front of him as the object of his wrath and fury? Okay? Now, you may be offended by the way that I say that, but in that moment, nobody will give a rip whether your feelings are hurt or not. There will not be another moment to call somebody for a hug. There will not be one more moment to call your therapist because you're offended. There's not going to be any further discussion about tolerance or religious preferences. That is it. It's the end. And you either stand with Jesus or you fall before the victorious king who is Lord. And, and, and for the unbeliever here this morning, I beg you today to make this the day that you give your life to Jesus. Please don't wait any longer. Please. You don't know when this day is coming. And I don't either. Make this the decisive moment where you surrender your life to the one who suffered in agony for you in the garden of Gethsemane, who died in despair for you on the cross, who rose in power for you from the empty tomb and is returning in glory for you. Make this that day, please. And all that takes is for you to humbly pray and admit to God that you're a sinner and you trust him for life and salvation and grace and forgiveness. He's already victorious. He's just waiting for you to turn to him. He's just waiting for you to say those words. And you can do that today. And your eternal salvation, your eternal future can be secure in Christ Jesus. I beg of you to join us in that. And those of us in this room who are believers already, I know that they beg you with me, please. Make today that day. Now, for those of you in this room this morning who've only been playing at Christian, who uh, have just been attending church or kind of casually following after Christ, you too face a decisive moment today. And just because you go to church or you're a good person or you were raised in a Christian home, it doesn't mean that you know Jesus. And our victorious Savior, he's not satisfied with a portion of your life. He's not satisfied with eating the leftovers of your busy schedule. 
Okay? He demands it all. He who suffered abuse for your forgiveness, death for your life, and rejection for your redemption. He gave it all for you. And in return, honestly, he expects nothing less than everything from you. That's the path of Christianity. And for the casual Christian in the room this morning, you too face a decisive moment. Is Jesus going to be your Lord of Lords? Will you trust him fully for your victory? Or are you going to kind of keep just casually putzing after him? Now, one final group of people this morning that I want to speak to for just one moment. It's those of you who are here this morning and you're just broken. You're just so broken. And maybe you've hardly even heard a word of what I've said this morning. Because there's too much turmoil in your life right now. Your heart is just too heavy. You're suffering from depression. A family member recently died. You know, your marriage is coming to an end before you. You're still unemployed after all these months or losing your home or whatever it may be. And you're here this morning and and you're just broken. And for you, I want you to understand that it's time to trust Jesus. It's time to turn that over to him. Trust in him, finally, to be victorious over your life. And if Jesus can endure being crucified, dead, and buried, only to burst forth from the empty tomb in glory, believe me, he is powerful enough to overcome your circumstances, to resurrect you from your brokenness. He's powerful enough. And so it's time for you also to have a decisive moment today. Time for you to mark your calendar, March 31st, 2013, the day that all of it changed because you gave it over to Jesus. You surrendered it to him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you're trusting in him to be the victory that you need in your life right now. That's this day for you. Now, whoever you are this morning, wherever you come from, whatever your circumstances, I ask you, I simply ask you, come to Jesus today. Please, come before him. Let him be victorious over your life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I love you, and you know every single person in this room here this morning. You planned on them being here, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would tug on our hearts in an irresistible way. That for those who don't know you, that right now, in their hearts, they would offer up their life to you. That they would ask you for forgiveness and trust you for for salvation. For those of us, Lord, who are guilty of casually following you, God, forgive us for the sin of apathy and grip our hearts this morning. God, I pray that that too would be a decisive moment for us where we would turn with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls to you, to pursue hard after you. And God, for the broken in this room this morning, God, heal their wounds, restore them, resurrect them, revive them by the power of the name of Jesus. And God, we turn our hearts to you now in worship and we praise you for who you are, Lord of lords and King of kings.